want to talk a little bit about why um, what we've done in the last two days and what we're doing today is so important. Um, this week in the UK, the um, Bureau of Advertising Standards, which is sort of their version of our FTC. It doesn't have the kind of teeth the FTC does, but it's there, and it exerts its authority really through the media. So to an offender, here the FTC would come after you directly. A state attorney general might come after you directly. The postal service guys, but that's rare. Um, the, uh, the, the Bureau in England basically goes to the media you are using and makes them shut you down or modify your behavior. So there are new rules as of this week for all advertising in England preclude images that reinforce gender stereotypes. Um, and um, of course this is pretty arbitrary. So you have, I don't know how many Brits sitting in a room deciding that your ad it has an image in it that reinforces a gender stereotype. Um, the examples that were used in the news report, so for example, Ford has a commercial that runs uh, a lot here right now. And it's two happy women going to lunch or a store or someplace and it shows the car parallel parking itself right, in a tight spot. The one says to the, uh, you know, one says to the other something like, you can't fit the car in there, and she says, watch, and the thing parks itself. And they get out and merrily go to lunch. Well, this commercial will not be allowed um, in the United Kingdom because it implies women can't parallel park a car leaving open the suggestion that men could, which again, think how arbitrary this is. I mean, it didn't show a guy whipping the car into the parking lot himself and then show them needing, or vice versa, but that ad will not be allowed. Uh, the other example they used is, you won't be able to in an ad show the woman changing a diaper, and the guy playing ball with his son in the backyard. You will have to show these roles reversed or not show them at all. So here now, so this is coming soon to a neighborhood near you. It, right, it, it really doesn't matter who starts this crap, it spreads. <clears throat> and really, it's already been going on here with big companies, advertisers, in advance of government regulation, and nobody's just announced it. But like, if you watch an evening of television and pay attention to the TV ads, you will see a lot of gender role reversal. Um, you'll see a car ad, for example, the woman is driving, the guy is the passenger. 
Okay? Now, 10 years ago, you never would have seen that in a TV commercial for cars. Now you're going to see it more often than not. It's the guy asking the stupid question of the wife. So we don't really have not reinforcing gender stereotypes so much as we do creating a new, more acceptable gender stereotype. But, it, but it's already going on a lot. Uh, Facebook, of course, is leading the pack in being its own regulatory agency, as we talked about at the very beginning of day one. And they, too, are concerned with images that they don't approve of, that convey some sort of idea, political thought notwithstanding. Uh, a major uh, pro-life advocacy group got thrown off of Facebook last week. They have fought their way back on, but they have had to agree at the landing page of their own website that, of course, their Facebook traffic finds its way to. They have had to take off the photograph of the happy new mom in the hospital bed holding the happy infant with dad standing there and smiles all around. So Facebook has made them remove the image, not from Facebook even, from their own damn website's landing page before they would be allowed back on Why? Facebook. Well, because it's an image Facebook believes is depicting an idea that they don't agree with. Now, they are not going to say it in exactly that manner, okay? But so it makes people feel bad who are uh, not pro-life. Well, but I'm telling you, it's coming soon to a neighborhood near you. And look, the worst part about all regulation, FTC, et cetera, is always its arbitrariness. So if it was universally applied and everybody got pulled over for speeding, so anybody going down this road at 35 miles an hour, and you're, you're going 38 or higher, there's enough cops to pull everybody over, not just the red convertible that, every, that gets noticed, or not the first one, and then the next five get to go by because they're busy with the first one. That would be fine. The problem is that's not how speeding works. And if you've ever been pulled over for it, and you say, Jesus, people have been passing me, like, I was standing still, what does the cop say? I got you, right? Can't get everybody, right? Their bad behavior is no defense. So all regulation is that way. But this is now arbitrary with agendas, which makes it worse. And it's actually being encouraged, because government is essentially threatening people like Facebook saying, if you don't get your shit together and regulate, we're going to come regulate. Well, that gives them permission to regulate, but now to regulate in a way that caters to their own biases and what they approve of and what they don't approve of. So you, at best, can have a winning campaign today Go to sleep, 
wake up tomorrow morning and the campaign be taken away from you. And maybe the media taken away from you permanently. These guys can speak to this directly. But they're certainly not alone. I mean, Craig Proctor, Stephanie runs very benign stuff on Facebook. And it's mostly um, stuff we've done on postcards now that migrate to Facebook. So she just told me of 14 things they've booted to initially with no explanation. And she's got to fight her way up the food chain, you know, to finally get somebody to say why it's been booted and how you could fix it, which in these two cases, there's no fix that would leave it effective. And then two more booted that could be fixed. Right? So like our number one lead generation uh, thing for Craig, the start of every headline is crazy rich agent. Right? Now I wrote it before the movie, but I wrote it after I read the book, I got it from the book, Crazy Rich Agents. Um, and so Crazy Rich Agent, now for two years, has outpulled anything else we do. Facebook woke up about a month ago, pulled it, and will only let her do it with a qualifying statement. Be well, you have to disclaim the fact that everybody gets to become a crazy rich agent. So the second line of the headline essentially has to say, maybe you will, maybe you won't. I mean, it has to do that function to be able to use that headline. Yeah, something like that, exactly. So you are sitting here negotiating and figuring out, and this will get worse before it gets better. It has to, right? I mean, and it has, by the way, in every media, right? It just hasn't gotten this nutty. But, you know, for decades, you could run advertorials in print with no slug. Now, most print media is going to force you to put an advertisement slug, you know, at the top of that ad. Some won't let you run them at all. Infomercials, we used to use news sets. If you go back to Joe Sugarman's shows, half of them were done with a news set. And he did it for the same reason I did it. Not really for the deception, but because the TV station we were shooting the show in let us use the news set. So we didn't have to build a set. I mean, that's why we both did it. And you could do it. And then the FTC woke up, and it's, it's precluded. You can't do it. It's not, you can't, dis, disclaiming it isn't enough. You cannot use a news set for a half-hour infomercial. So this is not, it's not like this hasn't gone on before. It has, but never really to this extreme and to judging content and to judging, so, you know, look, most TV ads in the consumer category are still uh, what Ogilvy called slice of life. And many of them reinforce gender stereotypes. 
it is still Mama cleaning the kitchen, and the Shazam arrives, who's now blue, but he's still Mr. Clean, you know. He's still the sexy, bare-chested, hair-flowing, Fabio-looking guy who, it's implied, gives her, what did Chris Matthews say about Obama, a thrill up her leg because this crap makes all the grease go away without having to scrub. Well, this precludes that commercial on about five different grounds, right? So, but if you, if you, if you clocked a week of TV ads about consumer products, you probably find today three-fourths of them are still the ad I just described, right? And so, it's, and again, it's allowing regulation by political bias, by age bias, et cetera, beyond deception, right? I mean, the FTC's job here is to prevent deception and, cons and deliberate consumer confusion, right? So their argument for all the regulations that have been imposed on television infomercials are people can't tell them apart from real TV shows, and therefore they are deceived. And so you got to do all this stuff so the consumer knows they're not watching a real TV show. That's very different from saying what you show in the TV show can't reinforce a gender bias. What does that, who decides, right? I mean, so this is now 16 steps further in interfering with what you can do. And in most cases, you'll never know until somebody shows up and says, you can't anymore. So, yeah, so it's not like you're going to submit all this stuff in advance and get an approval. Because first of all, the sheer quantity, it's impossible, right? I mean... And it's why the red car is going to still be the one that gets stopped, right? Because Facebook couldn't say, here's the answer to our problem. You're going to submit everything in advance 48 hours before you post it. Well, first of all, the business model wouldn't allow it. But second of all, how the hell are you going to pay for that? I mean, the sheer volume is impossible, right? So you're always... Not no, so here's what you're doing now. You're driving down the road in a red convertible and there's no speed limit sign. You don't know what the speed limit is. And they get to pull you over and write you a ticket and tell you what the speed limit is afterwards. That's really the environment. So the Bureau of Advertising Standards in England, I have had my experience with them because of Chris Cardell. They... Uh, showed up about the tear sheet mailing. Now, nobody in England had, like, seen him, so we had a really good two-and-a-half-year run with tear sheet mailing done right. So jagged edge, like you tore it out of the newspaper, actually reprinted from the London Times, so ran it once so you could do the tear sheet mailing. Uh, the post-it note, thought this would interest you, Jay the blind envelope. It took them two years. I mean, we mailed probably, I don't know, 200,000 of them things, maybe a quarter of a million. 
before the Bureau of Advertising Standards reared its ugly head. And their argument was a confused consumer, which of course is the point. I mean, so you, it's hard to win that argument because that is the point, right? So they have, they have a kind of a legitimate beef. So the FTC law about that here, by the way, which hardly anybody complies with, but you could be the guy in the red car. The last whack cost the advertiser $10 million in fines. Tear sheet mailing here, the tear sheet is supposed to say paid advertisement, and the post-it note has to say paid advertisement. So as a practical matter, you can't do thought you should see this J because the paid advertisement ruins it. It doesn't really ruin the tear sheet. So you either have to mail the tear sheet with no post-it note, or the post-it note has to now be disclosure in some way, right? So sometimes you'll see somebody use the celebrity endorser, right? So we used it with a tear sheet mailing for Miracle Air with Art Linkletter. And the post-it note had a little picture of Art Linkletter on it, and a note from Art, and then the note, thought you'd like to see this. I'll bet somebody in your family has some hearing problems, and at the bottom of the post note says paid advertisement. Okay, thing worked, it was fine, but that's the law. So the Bureau of Advertising, so we stretched them for six months, because they have no teeth. So all they could do with direct mail in England is go to your printer and say, you shouldn't be printing this. And the printer goes, let's see, I'm getting a check from this guy. I'm not getting a check from you, and you have no enforcement authority. I think I'll keep printing it. Uh, now, eventually, they drive them nuts, and you know. Uh, but we stretched it for six months, and you know, when it first happened, Chris said on the coaching call, "What do you think I should do?" I said, "I'd go buy a shitload of stamps and mail 12 million of these things while we still can." I mean, let's mail, 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 right? And we did. We just changed the color of the outside of the envelope, and we were dropping to the same list every week. Uh, for like the last six months until they finally drove them nuts and they were crawling up everything else, you know, affecting his radio advertising and his TV advertising. And so we, we gave in. But if that was an online thing, if that was a Facebook thing, if that was even a TV thing, the Bureau of Advertising Standards would have won in about an hour. It would be over. So my point about all of this is the last place there's real liberty is inside the sealed envelope. It's disappearing everywhere else. So if you aren't a master of in the territory that is inside the sealed envelope, if your business math does not support driving the business by what's inside the sealed envelope, you are going to have all sorts of bedevilments growing. You are always going to be at risk of the cease and desist or worse, and the effect of it being fairly quick. And you could, overnight, be out of business. So inside the envelope is not perfect. 
and it is in many ways, quote, quote, expensive, but it is where we are going to have the greatest liberty the longest. As almost an aside, for those of you who are either info first marketers or info marketers, this is just as true of content as it is of advertising. So if you're delivering your content online, you are much more subject to interference than you are if you are delivering it in print in an envelope. So it starts with the most objectionable Alex Jones being thrown off of every online media. Well, look, it's not easy to marshal a lot of sympathy, even if you're a conservative. Um, it's not easy. So we'll shoot him first, and a lot of people won't object. But then it's a much less offensive guy than Alex. And pretty soon it's anybody who the six youngins in a room at Facebook disagree with. Is that really the content place you want to be? We've made this. Have you seen the most recent Bellinger stuff? Or do you pay attention? Because I wrote some of it. Um, I mean, so we've made this for Lee Bellinger, who publishes financial information, political information, the cross of the two, two newsletters. Um, his back end, he sells stuff like solar power generators. So when the power grid goes down, you've got your little generator, and it doesn't make noise. Because if you've got a gas-powered one and it makes noise, all your neighbors who don't have any food kind of know you do. So if you own one of those, you better have like a bunch of guns. Um, but this one, the whisperer, nobody will know. As long as you don't turn on the lights, um, uh, nobody will know. That's like the back end of the business. But the front end of the business, my point is, so it skews, his customer skews old, 60 plus, conservative. So Lee does not want to be online. Right? He's not all the way to the point I am, but he's real close. He just doesn't want to screw with it. So he doesn't want to be there. And he doesn't want to be bothered by anybody by being there. So we've turned it into the sales argument of the only place there's any liberty left for Lee to speak to you without worry is inside a sealed envelope. So while everybody else you're getting information from is going online with it and asking you to go online to get it, they are either being censored or they are self-censoring out of fear of being censored. I won't do that. I am sending everything to you sealed. Right? So we've turned it into part of the sales argument, but it actually has the additional virtue of some truth. Um, so you've got to really think about this because it's coming soon to a neighborhood near you. Right? And it also starts in certain product categories mostly, so they find some product categories more objectionable than others, right? Now, the UK is going to hit Ford for their TV commercial, but they'd be the last guys to be hit here. But health, 
finance, any content overlap where you are expressing societal political opinion at the same time that you are driving business, which, you know, when I started speaking in, geez, 1974, the traditional advice was don't talk about sex, politics, or religion. And even then, I said, well, what the hell else is there to talk about? I mean, we've just described everything everybody's interested in and everything everybody's involved in. I mean, at least 50% of the reasons why people buy everything has to do with sex. Some are either not getting it or thinking this will help you get it. I mean, that's, that's why guys take out the trash. I mean, well, I'm serious. Go to any apartment of any single guy and take a look around. It ain't like he's taking the trash out every week, you know? But, but So he takes the trash out every Friday at home. Why? There's only one reason. And it ain't that he objects to having trash. He'd just have five trash cans in there. He wouldn't have, I mean, downstairs in my personal space in my office, that's been my solution. I don't want to empty the wastebasket every three days. I got eight wastebaskets. You know, when I was single, the first thing I did when I was newly single is I went over to JCPenney and I bought 365 pair of underwear. <laughs> I mean, I ain't going to do laundry for Christ's sake. I mean, <laughs> once a year, baby, that's when we're down to 364 in the trash can in the garage, we'll do some laundry, right? I mean... So, so the, guy, the married guy's taking the trash out for one reason and one reason only. I mean, that's it. So if you don't talk about that, now about 20% of the reason everybody does stuff, buys stuff, is religion. Not necessarily organized religion, but a concern about the moral ramifications of what they do. And in certain categories, so 80% of charity is all driven by religion, by morality concerns of guilt and am I going to have a seat too close to the furnace in the afterlife, etc. So if you eliminate sex and religion, what do you got left? Yeah, and that's the only other reason people do things. Not politics with a capital P necessarily, but politics with a small p, meaning your worldview, your, your belief system about how things work and how things are supposed to work. So if you don't talk about those three things, you got nothing left to talk about, right? And increasingly, so it was bad advice then, it's impossible advice now. So you can't, you can't do a Bob Hope routine, as I said yesterday. You can't do a Bill Cosby routine of general, so you can't even do Seinfeld, really. The last Seinfeld I was at, which Eric, by the way, was at Playhouse Square. Um, and Lillo and I were late. Um, we had a great reason, but we were late and in the front row. So we got to be part of the show for five minutes. Um, but you can feel the restlessness now in a Seinfeld audience because he is doing very vanilla, observational life humor it has no edge, ever. He's trying to keep it six steps away from these things. And you can feel the restlessness 
in the audience. So if you can't do it with comedy, you really can't do it with anything else either. You can't do it with a sales letter. You can't do it with a sales message. You can't do it with content. It's just not what people expect and are interested in now. So you got to do it, which means you might as well do it well, which means you better do it in a place where it's not going to disrupt your business arbitrarily, erratically, unpredictably, at any given moment in time. And the only place that exists is inside the sealed envelope. And the less you do there and the more you do everywhere else, the more vulnerable you are. So we have a full-page newspaper ad for Proactive. They're not using it now. Haven't been used in three years. But that's, again, just because they sold the Nestle. It's not because it stopped working. So that ad ran as a insert, freestanding insert in community newspapers for years. Um, never once. A letter from anybody. FTC, AG, publisher, nobody questioning anything. It also didn't need to be changed, by the way. Now, you couldn't run it right now in England under this law because it definitely reinforced gender stereotypes. It was written to mom as the concerned parent who deals with all of the problems of the daughter who won't come out of the room. Well, he's supposed to be dealing with that, and she's supposed to be teaching the kid how to throw a baseball 94 miles an hour. Um, uh, so in England, see, you could have a problem right now with advertising that would work for you. So not letter one from this newspaper insert. FTC bothered us all the time about the TV infomercials. You were constantly negotiating or arguing about this sentence, this claim, this picture. And that, we haven't been on the air with an infomercial in... Six years, so a lot has happened in six years. They'd be bugging us even more now. And if you took the infomercial and put it online and drove traffic to it via Facebook, you might be having a conversation with Facebook about the images in the show that make people feel bad about themselves. So this is the new world order, and it makes the inside-the-envelope territory very important. A uh, little take-home gift before we get started. I gave you, um, I don't have a page number, but it's very first section. Looks like this. This is the, this is just a piece of trivia, really, but this is the original sales letter Gary Halbert mailed to sell his newsletter. So this page is a, li is a lift note. The sales letter really starts here. That's Paulette, by the way, who I was talking about yesterday. And that's a young Gary. Um, and so I gave you the whole letter. Um, highly productive letter. And his trivia, it was really the start of my relationship with Gary. So like Doberman Dan, I mean, I grew up here. He in Barberton, uh, me in Richfield and Bath, and Gary hired high school students 
for the original Halberts business from the whole area to sit in rooms and open envelopes and separate the checks from the stuff. So, hell, I don't know, 50 kids I went to school with were all going over to Halbert's office above the bank in Bath after school and open envelopes. So we all knew who he was. And as an ad guy young, I mean, I understood what he was, but I never really paid any attention to him before. And I had moved to Phoenix when this letter came in the mail to my office. And um, um, on a whim, I picked up the phone and called, you know. And I said, you don't know me, but we have met. I have done a piece of work for Halbert's Inc., but we have met. And just on a whim, I got the sales letter, thought I'd call up, you know, I'm from Bath. And so I, like, tell the story I just told you. And, um, and I was on the phone with Paulette, who answered the phone. And she said, well, I'll get him. And now I'm on the phone with Halbert. And um, um, so I don't know. We talked for an hour or two. And Halbert goes, I got a seminar this weekend. It was one of his $7,000 per person hot seat seminars, which if you don't know about this thing, there are like 600 people at this thing. And they've, they're all getting a hot seat. So each one's coming up front and getting their business worked on. And they've all been promised a finished ad when they leave. <coughs> 600 people. I don't mean just written, I mean typeset, ready to put in the paper. This is what they've been promised. You know, I mean, insane. But the panelists, depending on who you were, you'd have five or six up here with Gary. You'd get your hot seat, and some of them would run into a room with you with the notes torn off the pad from Halbert, write your ad, and it would then go to the typesetters. Well, you know, by noon of day one, there's no way. Doesn't make any difference, by the way, because everybody forgave Halbert for every promise he ever made. But so Halbert says, I got like 500 people coming, they're paying $7,000, we'd do this hot seat thing. It'd be great to have you there for TV and infomercials and stuff. Uh, why don't you come down and you can speak? Now, I want you to think about this from a business standpoint. You got 500 people paying you $7,000 a piece to be in a room and your entire vetting of the person you are going to put on stage and let speak to them and do hot seats with them is he called out of the blue because he remembers you because he lived in Bath and you lived in Barberton. This is it. Come on down, go to work. I'm going, don't you want to know? No, 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 it's fine. He's I don't know much about half the people that are working this weekend. Don't worry about it. Come on. <laughs> uh, so that was the start of my relationship with, uh, with Gary. But the letter is, it's not as great as his lead generation ad, but this is a really good sales letter. And this built a really good new, and it worked, by the way, with cold leads generated out of the Wall Street Journal. Um, um, now, Gary could never stick with anything, so that lasted about a month. Um, but he was up to 8,000, 9,000 paid subscribers. Uh, of course, he never terminated anybody. So if you didn't renew, you stayed anyway. Because um, his theory was, I'll get other money from him. Why would I cancel him? So whether you renewed or not, you were, you were there for life. 
gradually we kind of, a bunch of us knew it, but we paid anyway. We, you know, it's like the coming up here and saying, I'll buy an extra nine tickets, so you'll do the thing. I mean, the relationship built was so good. Has dysfunctional or eccentric as he was, that we knew people weren't paying. So this is like knowing the guy next to you got the airline seat for nine bucks and you paid 600. Nobody was pissed. That's, that's, that's how good this was. But anyways, great sales letter, I give it to you as a gift. So, and a piece of historical trivia. So we're gonna start on your page 14, I believe, of this section which will start right behind the Halbert sales letter and its divider. Um, so I wrote the first version. Um, um, looks like this, if that helps you all. Um, I wrote the first version of the ultimate sales letter book. It was then called how to Write a Million Dollar Sales Lover in 1979. There was a precursor to it um, uh, called How to Write a Million Dollar Sales Letter for Chiropractors. Uh, it was actually first, and it got genericized from that. Um, and it got published as How to Write an Ultimate Sales Letter by Adams, I think the first edition was 1981, if I'm not mistaken. If you have the first edition, I believe it's got a 1981 copyright. Um, it has never been out of print. So this is, depending on how you count, the one that you get from Amazon now, if you order, is either the third edition or the fifth edition, depending on whether you want to count the ones that had different titles and were spiral bound uh, how to Write a Million Dollar Sales Letter was sold for $99, and Ultimate Sales Letter, I think, is nine bucks. Um, it's fundamentally the same book, but no book publisher is ever going to put a $99 price on anything because they're stupid. Um, but, um, and it had its big heyday before FedEx bought Kinko's because um, we were in every Kinko's store. Uh, and to their credit, the publisher got that done. I didn't get that done which is a miracle, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but we sold, probably in the total time, 50,000 copies in Kinko's stores. <coughs> and it caused a lot of activity. Uh, as you know, it basically lays out a basic process for the amateur to write a sales letter. And there are examples in the magnetic marketing system of people who just from the book wrote themselves a sales letter and put it in the mail and got great results. And in many cases, the process that's in the book is good enough. Uh, at the local market level, it's pretty much good enough, period, because of the level of competition. You know, so if you're writing a sales letter for your local winking lizard taverns, um, the other taverns, they, they're sending out a coupon. They, they don't even know what a sales letter is. 
let alone how to write one. So you pretty much can take the book and do it. If you're running up against these guys um, and millions of dollars worth of copywriters locked in a room who are worth at least half that, um, <laughs> um, uh, now, you know, the standard's a little higher. However, the architecture really is the same. It's just the flesh you hang on the bones has to be, has to be better. But the architecture really is the same. So this is fundamentally a fundamental process. That's what it is. I'm not really doing anything any different process-wise today. And I don't really do one sales letter for anybody, but if you kind of financially dissected the package of work, maybe I'm at $25,000 to write a sales letter. And I'm not doing anything different than when I was at 2,500. I haven't somehow 10 times the magic of the process. Right? So most sales letter needs can be met by sticking to fundamentals. The most fundamental thing to start by knowing is what is a sales letter. So first of all, it's a great force multiplier. So sales letters are door-to-door -door selling in an envelope. That's what they are. Instead of having 5,000 salespeople out there knocking on doors, you got 5,000 guys working for the post office delivering envelopes. You should not delude yourself into thinking that the rest of it changes much. Whatever you would have the guy do, at the kitchen table, <coughs> selling to Ma and Pa, at the counter in the small business, selling to the proprietor across the counter, in the boardroom at the Fortune 500 company, selling to the executives, you would do inside your envelope. You're multiplying that force. That's what you're doing. The good news is you're also locking it in. So salespeople are erratic. Good one day, not so good the other day. Held good, bad from one call to the next, from morning to afternoon, uh, early in the month, not so great late in the month if they've already made the amount of money they need to make uh, 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 for wine, women, and song that month. The last week, they're not so good. Once it's locked in in the sales letter, it doesn't have moods. So it delivers the same way every single time. So you get to force multiply with a sales letter. You can't hire enough salespeople to roam the world and talk to 300,000 dentists in any reasonable length of time in order to grow a business out of the 300,000 dentists. But if you got enough money and you want to do it, you can make a sales call on all 300,000 of them on Monday of next week. Um, and, and you can make a sales call all at the same time. And if you want to, and you do it by FedEx, you can say, as you can see, you have received this letter by FedEx. All 299,000 other dentists in America 
are receiving it at exactly the same time you are, 10 o'clock this morning, and we are only going to accept 300 of them. So the race is on. Well, you can't do that with a human sales force because they can't all, if you had enough of them, you wouldn't get them there all at the same time able to make that claim. So you get to take what you would do with a salesperson and force multiply it by locking it in at its best and being able to deliver it in whatever quantity and at whatever speed you choose to do and have the financial wherewithal to do. So as a copywriter, by the way, if hired, I'd ask Richard, but he had to leave us. He, he is participating today in a renewal of the vows of his 40-year marriage in some mass Catholic exercise with 500 other couples. I said, good for you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I would have used this as an excuse, but to each their own. But I imagine he would tell you the same thing. I don't know. But the first thing I want to do is I want to hear the best salesperson you got sell. Preferably, I want to get them recorded, not in role play, but with in real selling situations. And like a day's worth, because he'll be real conscious early, but he'll forget about being recorded late, and so you'll hear what he really does by about the fifth or sixth time he's doing it. And I want to get it transcribed because that's the best we know to do now. It doesn't mean we can't improve on it, but that essentially is the force I want to multiply. So if you have a salesperson who is doing well enough you haven't fired him, but preferably you got five and he's your star and he outsells everybody else with a fair level of consistency, I want to multiply him through my sales letters. That's what I want. And so it's one of the first things I do. You don't need me to do it. You can do it for yourself. And there's two things once you get the transcripts. So one is you're going to really consciously see all the bad. So you're going to see the randomness from one presentation to the next. You're going to see variables you never approved, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If you started with a script six months ago, you'll have to hunt for it. So you got to see all the bad, which you can choose to do something about if you wish. But you're also going to see what he is consistently doing, whether it originated with you or not, that seems to be driving the sale. And that you will want to extract, migrate out, organize, and multiply. So. He, the one thing about people that sell face-to-face, nose-to-nose, toast-to-toast, 
which is, by the way, why a lot of legendary copywriters have that experience, right, is they have a, a feel for the prospect and what makes them respond that it's hard to get any other way. So when I'm really engaged, I not only want the transcripts, I like to go be a fly on the wall, sit in the corner, harder and harder for me to do because I tend to leap in and fix what's going on. But um, um, I'll be in the corner. I like to actually go do the sale. So when I did all my work with Miracle Air, I went twice. Once early for this purpose. I said, I'm just good. I know enough now. I've read the shit that you got. I want to go run four appointments to sell hearing aids. Because I want to, in a real life setting, have the feedback from the prospect. See where I'm not getting any. So like if you're on QVC, Home Shopping Network, either one. But I've been at QVC with five or six clients. If you're on QVC, and by the way, if you haven't watched QVC forever, some people are proud they've never watched QVC. Dumb. Once a month or so, it wouldn't kill you to turn the thing on for a couple hours and watch QVC. Okay? Because you got to get good fast to stay on QVC because they're evaluating your sales number by the minute, the minute. And if the phone ain't hitting the number of rings it's supposed to hit, your segment might get cut short and your ass might be out of there. But you probably aren't going to get a second shot and you damn sure ain't going to get a third one. And you got an earpiece and they are telling you, that ain't working. That is working. Phone's ringing off the hook, right? So you have somebody talking into your ear the entire time you're working, making you adjust on the fly right, to what's happening in the phone room. Well, that is essentially what we do one-to-one, -one, right? So all of you probably, basically, now or before, have sold what you sell, what you do one-to-one, face-to-face, nose-to-nose, toes-to-toes. So there's a, there's a feedback loop that obviously we can't get when we move this to media. Um, I guess if you sat there while they read the sales letter, I mean, like, there's tests you want to give it. Um, the book advises, for example, reading it aloud. Um, preferably having somebody else read it aloud so you identify where they get stopped, where they get hung up. Okay? I like to have a kid read it aloud, um, somewhere in the 8 to 12 age neighborhood um, because that's about where most of your readers are. So, you know, I always said that my stepdaughter, our daughter, was much more useful when I got her than she was later. Because in that 8 to 12 range, she was really useful to read the sales letters aloud. At about 14, she wanted to critique them and rewrite them instead of reading them. 
And so, as she, as she became more expensive, she became less useful. It was, you know, it was a bad formula. You know, um, now, completely useless. So, you know. Um, uh, but, so that's a feedback loop, right? So, if you could sit in somebody's living room, a prospect, and not have them modify their behavior while they read the sales letter and just watch them, that would be a useful feedback loop, but we don't get it. So we migrate from where we have a feedback loop into where we don't have a feedback loop. Do you, does that make sense to you? So that's the first thing a sales letter can be, is it can be a great force multiplier. The second thing it can be is it's probably the best lead generation device there is. Um, uh, so most people try and do their lead generation cheap and spend all the money on the selling. If you look universally at direct marketing, small business, whatever, however you would want to look, you'll, you'll see this. They're trying to do their lead generation as cheaply as possible and spend all their money on the selling once they get a lead. And that sounds sensible on its face. So they will want to run only a 30-second spot on radio to generate leads, and then they want to send a big shock and awe package. And so, you know, the radio ad for the free book, or Larry Levin's ad that we used for four or five years. Hi, I'm Larry Levin. I'm the guy you've probably seen on some of the financial shows. I made a million dollars in the pits trading options. And if you'll just send me your email address, I'll email you my number one trading secret. That's almost verbatim. I don't have it memorized, but it's close. So that's a 30-second radio spot in order to get leads to then spend thousands on pursuing with media and Telereps, right? And it's easily ignored because it's so brief. So it has to win somewhere like radio by running a lot, like constantly, right, in order to win. So that put on a postcard and mailed, you got to mail to the same prospect six bazillion damn times to mine that group of prospects because it's easily ignored. Now, the radio universe is pretty sloppy. Lists aren't, right? So I can assure you if Ron Legrand would let us use his buyer's list for Larry Levin's option trading course, Larry would have more money. He sold the company, so he wouldn't have it now. But he, if he did, he would have more money than he could put in the bank that month because they're like, perfect. So sending them a lead generation postcard would be dumber than a box of rocks because we don't want any of them to be able to ignore the lead generation. I would weight the spend 50-50. I would spend as much on the lead generation stuff as I would on the sales stuff. 
because I don't want to risk being ignored by any of them because I know they're perfect. One of them might, while we're trickling through them with six bazillion postcards, Ron's customers skew a little old. Not as old as Ron, but they skew a little old. And so some of them might die before we got their money. Well, that would, that's, that's a horrible thought, right? I don't mind if they die after we get their money, but not before we get their money. So speed's kind of of the essence when you're selling to 60 and 70-year-old people. You know, you can't be messing around. Today could be the day. So I wouldn't want to risk being ignored with a qualified list. So what's the best lead generation device there is? A full-blown sales letter in an envelope, FedExed, or mailed in a way that cannot be ignored. So almost everybody that does any kind of lumpy mail, where do, where do they do the lumpy mail? Over here, once they start the sales process. They don't do it over here in the lead generation process. I will put it in the lead generation process if I'm going to leads we know are reasonably well qualified. If Fisher would let Jim Lang, where's Jim? There you are. If Fisher would let you have his unconverted leads in Pittsburgh, say with a 90-day lapse from the time that they first inquired to Fisher, so they've raised their hand from lead generation advertising. They've at least claimed they have a half a million dollars or more of investable assets, and most of them will be telling the truth or really close to it, right? They are somehow anxious about having that money managed or they wouldn't have responded to the ad in the first place and they're retirement oriented as are you so if they would let you have those leads what would you want to send them to generate them as a lead for you yeah 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 that's exactly right okay so it's a version of Halbert's old game which was if you could only do one thing, and you have to win, right? So who in here is, I'll do the Halbert game, just so you know it. Who has kids? Multiple kids. Okay, great. Um, you got one you like? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. And which one do you like best? Okay, there you go. Okay. So the Halbert game is, how, how old? Great, perfect. So the Halbert game is we kidnap your kid. And we tell you, you got to do a marketing thing with media that has to work. The result has got to be great. And you got to do it in the mail. If you fail, you'll get a second shot. We're just going to cut off the kid's left hand and send it to you in a box. And then you can try again. If you fail the second time, we'll cut off the right one, and we'll just keep cutting off body parts until you either succeed or we're out of parts. Are you going to send a postcard? No, right? I mean, so this is how the game starts, right? I mean, look, if there's big stakes, you intuitively know you're not going to do cheap, small, easy to ignore, right? You're going to do like you just said, you're going to do something that cannot be ignored. 
Well, anytime you can get your hands on a qualified list, the stakes are big. So you want to do something that can't be ignored. So the second thing a sales letter is, it is, is actually the best lead generation thing we have offline. Nothing else trumps it. And almost everybody else tries to do it on the cheap and move all the money to the sale. It's like I have a client that puts people in free previews, like Ron does. And so the free preview seminar, so first of all, once they raise their hand and responded to lead generation, it costs about 450 bucks to get them into the room. There's a cost for the room divided by the number of people that are in the room. There's a sales speaker on the road that his flights are being paid for, his rent a car is being paid for, his hotel's being paid for, his food's being paid for. He's bringing all his cleaning from home and getting it cleaned in the hotel, so you're, you're paying for that. Every once in a while, you got to pay bail to get them out of jail. I mean, that, so you add all that up, you divide it by the number of bodies in the room. You're in the $1,000 neighborhood to have this prospect in the room. And the client keeps trying to get the hand raised to start the process for 10 bucks. I'm going, how does this make any sense? Right? Let's do this better and let's weight the money differently. I'd even be okay with less people in the room if we get better people in the room. Right? But very few people think that way. So that's the second really great thing a sales letter can be. Right? One of the chief virtues, I'm on your next page, of the letter is a reader's tolerance for length. So there's two chief media where tolerance for length is elastic. There's a bunch of media where it isn't. TV commercials. No. They get up, they go to the bathroom, they go to the kitchen, they talk amongst themselves. Anybody in here long married? 20, 30 years? Okay? So if you're sitting on a couch and you're watching a TV show together, what's happening? In mid-sentence, everybody shuts up when the show starts and you resume your conversation when the commercials come on. That's what goes on, right? So the tolerance for length in TV commercials is like zip. Right? Now, infomercials, you can do it, but it's kind of an illusion because nobody's watching the 28 and a half minutes. You're getting them in little hunks within the 28 and a half minutes. And by the way, something better happen. Like the Larry King thing is a hard format. It's a cheap format, but it's a hard format because there's nothing happening. You know, people want to see a car crash or something. You know, I mean, see, if you don't, so Game of Thrones fans, okay, really, you're it, you got your it? So who are all those people that watch? So, millennials, okay. So how many minutes would you stay with the show 
without somebody being naked. Well, there's a formula for cable television series of, there's a formula in speaking, you know, you got to make people laugh every, most people would tell you every seven minutes, or you lose them. There's a formula, right? How, how many minutes can go by before we got some naked people running around in here, or people aren't going to stay with the show, okay? So there's not a lot of tolerance for length in a lot of media. You have to really fight for it. You have much more tolerance, by the way, in the physical world, generally speaking, than you do in the non-physical world, because like I get in a free preview seminar, I got you in a room. That works like a movie theater. You had to get a babysitter. You had to make sure there was gas in the car. You had to drive across town. You had to park the car. You came in here, you sat down. If I could finagle you to sit towards the front, it's kind of embarrassing to leave while the speakers speak in, et cetera. So your tolerance for length is forcibly expanded. If you're watching that same presentation on your computer alone, the tolerance for the length collapses. That's why a lot of times somebody who's good in a room doesn't work on TV because they just replicate what they were doing in the room. Now, in the early days, when you could buy the time for next to nothing, that didn't matter. If you were buying a half an hour show for 300 bucks and you put Ron on and you just put him at the front of the room and had him do what he does in a room, you made money. But after about the first seven or eight years, you would lose money because people would click away. They would get up, go to the bathroom. They would talk to the spouse, whatever. Doesn't happen in a room. So you forcibly expand tolerance in the physical world anyway. The door-to-door -door salesman, if he gets in the door and he gets seated and he gets the stuff unpacked, he forcibly gets expansion of tolerance for length. Because most people have to be pressed pretty far before they are so rude as to say, pack your shit up and get out of here, we're done, right? They kind of suffer through to the end. The, door, the cookware salesman always unpacked all 48 pots because it takes another 20 minutes to repack 48 pots, and that's 20 more minutes I can keep trying to close. It's like the really brutal platform sales guys you see who stand up on a chair, they don't stop talking. They keep talking when they're done all the way down the aisle and they're up on a chair in the back room still talking to the eight people around them and people trying to go to the bathroom, right? They're forcibly expanding. You can't do that with media. So a lot of what works in the physical world does not transfer perfectly to the non-physical world. There's two media where Tolerance for length expands voluntarily. It happens because of the behavior of the person with the media. So one is a catalog, which we didn't talk a lot about yesterday. But catalogs, the person voluntarily expands their tolerance for length. If they, this is like if the door-to-door -door salesman gets in the door. If they take the catalog and they take it over there 
and they put it on a pile of magazines and catalogs that they're going to look at, and they get themselves a cup of tea and the cap, and they sit in the chair. They're going to go through every page if there's any level of interest in that subject matter at all. So they will voluntarily give you more time. The other format is the sales letter. That's why we can get away with 54-page little booklets and 60-some-odd-page sales letter. My all-time winner started at 12 pages and wound up at 84. We just kept adding another four pages, right? like the house in San Francisco, you know, where they just kept adding staircases and rooms and shit. You can take a tour of it. Because the same thing happens. So first of all, they had to make a series of small yes decisions. So they had to not throw it out. They had to open it. They had to decide to keep it and read it. They had to take it somewhere that they are going to sit and read it. Right. So they are voluntarily giving you more time. Right? It's why, so I had him as a client for a little while, but it's why the it's just lunch thing is no good if your goal is get the other person back to your apartment and in the sack on the first date. It's no good, okay? because there's a locked-in, small, finite amount of time. That's why it's called, it's just lunch. Now, if you're legitimately shopping for somebody you would like to be in an ongoing relationship with, and you on a screen like 12 of them relatively efficiently, hoping one of them you're going to resonate with and they're going to resonate with you, it's just lunch, it's great. So it depends on what you want to accomplish. But it does, nobody voluntarily expands because they committed to something at the end, so they can't even if they want to. Now, you go out to dinner, they can voluntarily expand, right? You can get that time expanded into the wee hours of the morning if you're good at it, but you ain't going to expand that. So these two things, they'll voluntarily expand. Once they've made those little decisions and they've got seated in their chair over here, and they got their coffee, and, and, and they got the sales letter, as long as it doesn't bore the crap out of them, they'll stay all the way to 60 pages instead of just six pages. So these are the two media that lend themselves to this best. Now, multimedia packages, even more so. So here's why this is so important. I call it the secret of time invested. It's one of the most important direct marketing principles and sales principles there is. Sales people know it experientially, if not as having been taught to them or reasoned. They know it experientially. But a lot of people don't even know it. And a lot of people who know it consistently fail to apply it. So the secret of time invested is, real, is very simple. It is the more time you get a prospect to invest in you, with you, the more likely they are to buy. 
That simple. So the first thing I did at Miracle Air, after listening to the god-awful telephone and in-person sales presentations, the in-person sales presentation was even worse than the phone. So I got 1,200 offices. There's like four, four sales guys in each office, four salespeople, and their best you would fire if you could. So they want better ads to drive more people into this crappy sales system, which I know is self-defeating, but I also know they're not going to let me fix the salespeople. They want no part of it. They're a franchise organization, so the corporate corporation doesn't want to spend any money on that because they get their 7% of the gross. They want to keep it all. The franchise owner should pay for it. Franchise owner doesn't want, want to pay for sales training because they think the company should fix that. Plus, they refuse to admit how bad their salespeople are. So I can't fix it. All I can try to do is make the same crappy salespeople doing the same crappy sales presentations more effective by doing something else. One, of course, is shock and awe packages. What media does the prospect get before they get there? Not just because of what the media says, but because it increases the time the person has invested before they say yes or no. It doesn't matter, actually, if the media was as bad as the salespeople. It would still increase conversions if people spent 45 minutes going through the media before they went to the presentation. But the first thing I did, because that takes time, first thing I did is I changed just the exam. So this is a diagnostic cell, right? You come in, you take seven tests that prove to you you can't hear, and then they show you the results. So it's the same if you go to a chiropractor, you get the diagnosis, you get the exam, you get the x-rays, then they put the x-ray up on the light box and they show you that your spine's shaped like this, and it's supposed to be like this. They got the little twisty thing they show you. So these sales processes are all the same, right? Exam, show the result, prove the need, and then make the sale. So there's seven tests. So you go to the Miracle Air office, you sit there, you take test number one. You come back out, you sit for a few minutes, they come and get you, and they go give you test number two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So all I did is double the length of time between the tests for no reason. I just said, you got 10 minutes between every test now. I want 20. Let them sit. I didn't create shit for them to look at while they sat. I didn't have time yet to do that. I didn't put monitors up and run videos. I did nothing. I didn't fix the salespeople. I didn't change the office. I didn't change the actual test. I didn't fix any of the scripts. I did nothing but double the time of the total in the office before they got the, the, the close. 25% increase in conversions. That's all I did. Got hired to write copy. 
we need a year for that to take effect, and you guys are bleeding. Let me do something that'll fix this right now. So all I did, understand, is I increased the time invested by the prospect to the point of sale. And more often than not, that alone has impact. So now if you combine it with doing effective things with the added time you create, you get even better results. So in lead generation, if they read a four-page letter to request the free book, you're better than if they request a free book from a postcard. Because you've started to add time invested. There's a gender issue with some of this. So broadly speaking, reinforcing gender stereotypes, some women go shopping not to buy anything. It's sport. It's entertainment. And they're picky, which actually is a good characteristic. I'm not being critical. I'm just telling you. Carla will go to the mall, be gone for four hours, and come back, and she hasn't bought anything. I'm, like, mystified. <laughs> right? I'm like, what the hell did you go there for? Well, I was looking for a hat to wear. Well, where's the hat? I didn't find anything I liked. Now, a guy doesn't have to find something he likes. He's coming home with a hat anyway if he went to get a hat. He'll settle for the least worst hat they got because he went to get something. That's why he went over there. But if you really want to increase the likelihood of him buying stuff, make him drive past three malls and go to the furthest mall. Coming home with three hats. Because that's what we do. Now, where the male does the opposite of this is fishing. They don't go to fish. I went once with my grandfather. We're out there for like six hours on a lake. Miserable. Right? Not out of fish to be found. Going, I thought we were going fishing. I said, that really doesn't matter. Well, why are we out here? Well, I get away from your grandmother for six hours. Okay, I kind of get that. Right? I have peace and quiet. I like the lake. So that's strange behavior. But mostly, when people invest time, they are reluctant to have it bear no fruit. That's why in the preview seminar business, if you, so for three years we did tours to chiropractors and dentists. So we would, um, let's say a Southern California tour. So we would do a hotel near the airport, LAX one night, then we would do Anaheim, then we would do San Diego, then we would be looping all the way back around, maybe doing the valley and winding up at LAX. We publicized all of them to all of California because we would do a southern tour and then a northern tour. The slam dunk 100% close was the guy who came from at least an hour away. The guy who flew, because even though the seminar was coming to San Francisco, he couldn't go on that day. So he hopped on a Southwest flight and came to the one at LAX. 
he's buying. You could, by the way, put the worst sales speaker ever in that room, pitching the dumbest proposition ever. He's buying, because he ain't driving to the airport, getting on a Southwest flight, giving up half a day in practice, flying to LA, sitting in the room, getting on the plane, and going home empty-handed. It's not happening. Really dumb preview seminar marketers, by the way, they wait all their money to the closest circle to the location of where they're doing the preview seminar. So like the Get Richer Real Estate guys that come here, they use this hotel and they use our other hotel a lot. They will mail Cleveland, not even all the way to Akron. But the slam dunk guy drives here from Canton to come to that seminar. You'll 100% close him because he's got more time invested. So even if I could get the job done with, let's say, an eight-page letter, I'd rather do it with a 16-page letter, and I'd rather give him a CD to listen to that basically mimics the letter, et cetera, et cetera. So secret of time invested is really important to understand generally and really important to apply through uh, sales letters and corollary material. Uh, this is one of the most mailed circulation sales letters ever. Uh, it was a control for many, many years for the Wall Street Journal selling subscriptions. You can get the whole letter at AWAI online if you don't have it anyplace else. And it's a story. It drove a billion dollars or more in revenues. It's long. I forget how many pages it actually is, but it's at least eight. And it's really selling a pretty simple proposition. You kind of either want to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal or you don't. Right? But it's a complicated sales proposition. It's made with a long story. It's made with long copy. Now, here's what I can't prove, because I don't have split test data. But I can promise you the renewal rate of the people who subscribed from this is better than the renewal rate than the people who subscribe from a pop-out card in the Wall Street Journal they picked up out of the vending machine to eat at the diner. I see you. Give me one second. And why is that? Because I got more time all the way along my process. Yes? Do you get a swipe in the story of that letter? And you did an A-B test of the long version and the short version. And exactly like you said, the long version outperformed the short version. Seven pages versus three pages in a seven-page one. Same letter. Yeah, by the way, yeah, and to his point, if you're doing beat the controls and you don't know what else to do, rewrite the thing at twice its length. If they got a control that works, just rewrite the damn thing twice as long if you don't know anything else to do. More often than not, you'll win. And you'll definitely win if they measure behavior beyond the initial transaction. Because if you go back and look now, if you haven't, I'll bet you a stake. 
the behavior of the people who bought from the seven-page letter is better than the behavior of the people who bought from the two-page letter. So I already want beer on it. Now it's a beer and a cake. There you go. OK. So the next thing to know about sales letters, very simple. How they look matters a lot. Okay? It's not in your book, I don't think. So how they look matters a lot. Right? So here's how you would know this if I didn't specifically talk about it. You would know it because a sales letter is a door-to-door -door salesman in an envelope. So when a door-to-door -door salesman shows up, at your door, does how he or she looks affect whether or not you open the door and talk to them, undo the chain, invite them in? So if two door-to-door -door salespeople arrive at your door at home or walk into your office, and one of them looks like a biker. So he's wearing a leather vest, no shirt, he's got tattoos all over. Um, He's got razor blades hanging from one ear. Um, um, and he's got a great big old belt buckle uh, with, a, with a skull and crossbones on it. And he's got some kind of club hanging from his belt. And somebody else shows up in a nice suit and a shirt and a tie. Who has the better chance of being invited in to sell you a vacuum cleaner? Even if you're a biker, who has a better chance of getting invited in the guy in a suit, of course. We know presentation matters. It's out of print, but if you can find a copy of, um, what's the name of the book, Sydney? No, 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 your, our book. Um, yeah, thank you. If you can find a copy of Uncensored Sales Strategies, there's a bunch of stuff in there from Sydney's former life eons ago that is all about this. Literally, what the guy sees through the peephole of the person standing on the other side of the door who he has hired matters. And it matters in multiple ways. So he did a bunch of um, um, kind of focus group stuff, interviews with clients of high-end skincare spas, cosmetic surgeons. The customers talk about the person at the front desk didn't have manicured nails. You think they don't notice? Of course they notice. So the appearance of a person matters a lot. I figured it out real early selling from the stage. There was a consistent difference between suit and sport coat and shirt and tie. Consistent. I fooled around with that enough to convince myself it mattered. You may have heard it, it's comedic and embarrassing, but it's instructive. So very early when I was speaking to self in the front of the room, I spoke anywhere you could get an audience, spoke for free. And at the time, every real estate office had mandatory sales meetings. They can't do it anymore. Every insurance office had mandatory sales meetings. They can't do it anymore. And every multi-level group had small weekly meetings. So in Phoenix, there might be 
500 weekly Amway meetings. There might be 500 weekly Herbalife meetings. There might be 500 Mary Kay meetings. The sales training meeting, not the opportunity meeting. And there might only be 30 people at this one and 60 people at this one, but you could make a living there. Uh, and pretty much you could get those gigs pretty easily. So I quickly discovered, because those people are distributors and multi-level companies behave like college alumni. Okay? So the colors matter, right? So if you're going to do an Amway group, red, white, and blue, so you want a blue suit, white shirt, red tie, and a flag pin. That's the deal. Up go the sales automatically. First where I learned it was with the product itself. So the cassette albums, if you got some old cassette albums at home, you'll see Nightingale Conants are all what are called sealed traps. The plastic is sealed around the cardboard insert that is the cover all the way around. You can't take it out. Then the unsealed trap, it's loose at the top, so you can interchange the cards. So the first thing I figured out with the colors was let's change the card. So if I'm going to an Amway group, all the product has red, white, and blue covers. If I'm going to Herbalife, all the product has green and gold covers. It's the same cassette album. Then I said, well, if it works with the cassette programs, because, oh, there's a bump. And people anecdotally would say, oh, it's our colors. Yeah, right, okay, good. It'll surely work with the suit. So the Amway group, you got a blue suit, white shirt, red top, up go the sales. Herbalife, green and gold. So I had a green suit with little gold pinstripes, gold tie, you look like Herbalife. So if you're going to go do a Mary Kay group, I had a pink suit, and a white shirt, and a pink tie, and pink patent leather shoes. I was cute. I mean, uh, but it bumped sales, and I'm pretty shameless about what will bump sales. Now, on those nights, I parked my car as close to the hotel exit as humanly possible for the shortest walk possible from the meeting room to the car in the pink suit, but I wore it because it worked. So how your stuff looks matters a lot. Now, I grew up in commercial art, so I'm type font sensitive. A lot of copywriters aren't. They're writers. I come from the graphic side. I'm more initially a Kia than I am a copywriter. I set type by hand as a kid, before you had phototype setting, and before you had a personal computer. I'm very font sensitive. I'm, uh, I'm the appearance of the page sensitive. Unlike almost any other copywriter, I actually fool with the fonts as I write. My rough draft is graphicked up before I ever get to my final draft. Because really what that stuff is, is voice inflection and gesture and body language. That's what it is. Again, the sales letter is the door-to-door -door salesman put in an envelope. So what the sales guy would do up here or across the kitchen table with you, that now has to move into the sales letter, but it can't. So that's font, font size, font variance, Margin variance, indent, not indent, all of that. If you're doing color, fake yellow highlight, red margin note, 
that's the same as gestures, body language, voice inflection. That's what it is. And it all matters. So like I could be I could have beat this control this winter without changing a word of the copy, but fooling with the way it looks. There is no doubt in my mind. And if I saw the results in advance, I'd kind of be a dummy to try and beat the copy. But I would fool with its copy cosmetics. There's a reason women wear cosmetics. In between um, um, second marriage and third marriage, same wife, uh, I dated um, monogamously. And the one that was really sticking around, the first sign that this probably should not be allowed to turn into anything permanent is I realized she was setting her little phone alarm and getting up an hour early in the morning, putting her cosmetics on, and coming back to bed. I said to myself, uh-oh. This is a, I appreciate the effort, but there's something psychologically maybe not entirely right here. So we're going to have to put away all the sharp objects and eat with dull knives and things for the rest of my life. But there's a reason people wear cosmetics, right? There's a reason we pick out, gee, what tie am I going to wear today? We give some thought to it because it affects the way people respond to us. A lot of the internet geek guys who started stepping to the stage to sell, even in audiences of other internet geeks, the ones who insist on looking like they got out of bed, so they got the least dirty t-shirt they brought with them to the hotel on, and you know, jeans and sneakers and all that. I've proven to two of them, if I just clean you up, I don't fix your presentation, I just clean you up. And I actually put you in business clothes your sales go up, even in the room, with a bunch of other people who look just like you. They all look like they just got out of bed to get to the meeting, because they did. None of those people are morning people. So, you know, I just saw Yannick Silver at American Writers and Artists, and I mean, he was downstairs at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he looked awake. I said, what the hell happened to you? I mean, I haven't seen you in five or six years, but Jesus Christ, you were never any good before noon before. You know, well, this, this, they're all up early, so I've had to force myself to, yeah, because it works, right? And he, like he was dressed like a civil human being who might be in business. I mean, so this stuff matters. We all know it. You all know it. You all, in your personal behavior, give some thought to it. So it matters with this. So when I yesterday showed 50% to list. See, I said the next most important thing is the presentation. And in there is the copy, but also is the appearance, how you dress the copy. And by and large, 
different markets react to different things differently. So you, if you transferred from one school to the other when you were in junior high, even just one school to the other in the same city, but certainly if you went from one state to the other, so you were unlucky enough to say transfer from a junior high school in Boston to a junior high school in Houston, what did you quickly figure out? Yeah, the clothes you are wearing, the shoes you are wearing that were great in Boston are going to get you beat up in Houston. And you got to go get other clothes, right? So same thing here. The way this stuff looks can matter by geography, just by the way, as copycat. Arkansas is a different place than Massachusetts. It's not just a different state. I mean, it's a different place. Go spend a week in Little Rock and go spend a week in Boston and just hang out. You'll get it real quick. So, should the copy be different? Ideally, yes. Should the look be different? Ideally, yes. Right? So all of this matters as much, maybe, as does anything else. So, oh, you guys probably need a break. I don't, but you do. So how about 15 minutes?